0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sweden in Focus, the locals weekly podcast casting a curious eye over the latest news from Sweden. We're recording this episode on Thursday, the 16th of June. Coming up on this week's show, we're going to meet someone who moved to Sweden after studying the country's performance in international rankings. We will seek to untangle Sweden's budget mess. We'll discuss the left party and their chances in the September election after we interviewed party leader Nushi Dagostar. And finally, we'll look ahead to the summer holidays and if Sweden is making any progress in shortening the queues for airport security that have been causing major headaches for international travelers I'm Paul Amani and I'm joined today by James Savage in Stockholm and Richard Orange and Becky Waterton in Malmö. And we also have a guest in the Malmö studio who's joining us for the first part of the show. And he is Carlos Velasco, a computer programmer from Honduras, who we'll be talking to in just a couple of minutes about his unorthodox reasons for moving to Sweden. Hello, everybody.
2: Hello. Hello. Hello.
0: And just before we get to Carlos, how's everybody else doing? James, you've had a, a rough week. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, I had COVID, um, but so that wasn't much fun. But um, despite my three vaccines, but you know, it, well, it felt it felt like uh, I've been feeling almost a little bit left out. It felt like it felt like everyone <laughs> in the world had, had COVID apart from me. So no, now, I think it's after...
2: very uh, twenty twenty of you
1: it is it felt very 2020 slightly retro so it felt sort of weirdly nice to get it over with it is one of those weird things you you read all about it during the sort of height of the pandemic and you know all these you know it was a totally serious thing and now now it's sort of like you are not not really quite sure what it is and how to handle it anymore
2: did you have to isolate did you have to test
1: well you didn't you don't have to test you do I think you have to isolate. I did isolate anyway. I stayed at home and, and avoided other people. I thought that was a the, the, the considerate yeah, yeah. thing to do. Um, I'm not really sure exactly how to handle it now that I'm feeling better, but I think I might just get on with life.
0: Yeah, good, I mean, good to hear that you are feeling better. It's, it's been, you've had it for about a week now, right?
1: I've had it for about a week now. So I, I, decided, I decided today not to cram myself into a tiny, tiny podcast studio with you, Paul, and potentially still give it to you. But I think, um, <laughs> I think I'm think i going to go back to a normal yeah,
0: life. Um, yeah, Really grateful for that. <laughs> okay, and Becky, you interviewed uh, Nushi Dagostar last week. How, how was that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was pretty nerve wracking because it was very spontaneous. I kind of read that she was going to be in Malmö at this Nushi festival that the left party were running and just kind of <laughs> went Sorry. up. To Nushi somewhere. festival? Yeah, yeah, it's a Nushi festival that the party were running about like she was giving a speech and you could go and get your selfie with Nushi and there was like children's activities there. So I kind of parked my husband and our two-year-old at this festival. So my, my daughter was off getting her face painted. And then I just kind of wandered over to someone wearing a high-vis jacket and was like, hey, I'm a journalist at The Local. Can I interview Nushi for five minutes? And then they were like, oh, no, go to talk to that person. Go talk to that person. Go talk to that person. And eventually, five people later, I got a yes. You can talk to her for five minutes, but only if it's in Swedish. It's like, oh, okay, right, I'll just prep these questions in Swedish, uh, figure out what I'm going to ask her kind of on the spur of the moment. So it was it was very spontaneous, but I think it ended up going quite well. And Richard was like messaging me questions like, "Oh, ask her about this, ask her about this so uh, we ended up getting a good interview out of it
0: yeah that's that is quite stressful, and we'll be talking about it a little bit more later and Richard, you had to queue for an emergency passport this week. How was that
3: it was a surprisingly life affirming actually so people were there from like four o'clock in the morning i was I finally got my passport, one of the last four people at six thirty in the evening. But what was great was 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 just how helpful everyone was. For to each other and how everyone sort of spontaneously organized and wrote, made lists of who's in the queue when. You got blankets. And, and yeah, and I yeah. turned up without nearly warm enough clothes, and someone gave me a blanket. My phone ran out of batteries. Someone gave me a fully loaded, you know what do you call it power battery bank. pack power bank it, it's just it was a really kind of quite a nice spirit but obviously also an absolute nightmare <laughs> to have to queue <laughs> for, for for 15 hours to get to get a possible i mean I, I to be honest i i thought i would be out by you know 11 the next day or something i was not expecting i i thought if i if i got there at 4 in the morning i wouldn't have to wait the entire of the next day i thought that would get me to the front of the queue but sadly it didn't
2: also <laughs> um, you were you were outdoors like you were really lucky it wasn't very- or anything.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it did start raining for a bit. I mean, uh, and just as I was leaving, they put up a tent for the which made us think they were thinking we were going to stay the night afterwards as well. I mean, there, there was a, a fear that if we didn't get through, then the only way to keep your place would be to stay there over the entire night. And um, in the end, they changed. They said, no, you can have a ticket and come back at seven o'clock in the morning. But luckily, I didn't have to.
1: I'm in awe of your ability to look on the bright side and see, the, and see <laughs> queuing out all night to do a boring bureaucratic task as, as a life-affirming experience.
3: It's also really nice to. There's, there's not. I mean, Malmo's slightly segregated city, so it's actually quite nice to see the whole population from all the different parts of town, all in one place. And you feel like actually, I quite like this city. I like these people. You know, it's a, it's a nice mix. And yeah, I don't know why. I, I, would, I wouldn't have expected it to, to have come out thinking, wow, that was great. But I did. I probably wouldn't have felt that way if I hadn't got my passport, to be honest. No. <laughs> yeah. I hope when my
1: passport is um, up for renewal that I'm spared any life-affirming experiences, I have to
3: say.
0: <laughs> We'll come back to all this um, travel chaos uh, a little bit later because a lot of people are having trouble getting out of the country, from Orlando Airport in particular. Now we're going to talk about Swedophiles or people who move to Sweden, not because they fall in love with a Swede or happen to get a job here, but rather those who are attracted to the country itself for various reasons. And Carlos, you fit this description, don't you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to move to Sweden?
4: Sure. Well, uh, I come from Honduras. It's a Central American country. I had a pretty good life there as far as childhood and and teenage years are concerned. But uh, there was a big turn of events there right around 2009. Big political crisis and unfortunately lots of drug cartels uh, increasing their operations there. For some people, I I guess they can avoid it. There's still millions of people there. But for me, it became sort of uh, inevitable. So... Uh, yeah, in my case, it was something that merited a uh, an asylum application. At that time, I didn't have much time to think, so I just had to get out. And I had studied in the U.S. about six years and, and worked for about one year. So I already had uh, bank accounts and social security number. Uh, so it was quite easy to just go there and kind of stay for a year and, and see if things worked out over there. I didn't quite like it. I think uh, the American dream is perhaps somewhat of a myth for some and just as well the process of asylum wasn't really working out there as well for very unfortunate political reasons I, I would say yeah at that point that's when I, I started looking at a lot of websites making some online searches for things that my country was usually at the bottom of because I really wanted to avoid those so I, I had this uh, sort of list of categories that I would look through. Um, Safety was at the very top, of course. Things like the homicide rate and the uh, corruption index and things like that. Quality of life was also quite important. So how happy people are, Um, levels of uh, education, overall health, things like obesity rates and uh, life expectancy and things like that. So it it took several weeks uh, for me to actually try to make the full list of countries and narrow it down to maybe less than 10, but surprisingly, they were all in the the same region. They were all in the the Nordic countries in Scandinavia, with the exception of Canada, which is quite similar in a cultural way and perhaps many other ways. So it it became sort of a a toss up between Scandinavian countries uh, and at that point, I, I could stop looking at the statistics and, and try to see what kind of a, a fit it would be uh, in terms of cultural values and anything else. I, I could be quite picky, and I looked at um, how many startups there were in each country and, and how many technology companies were operating in each. So Sweden turned out to be probably the best fit, but it was in many ways it was still quite a toss-up. So I didn't know anyone in Sweden; didn't have any contacts. No family. No, I've never been to this uh, half of the, the globe. So my entire life was set between Central America and the U.S. Back then, so it, I was quite nervous uh, trying it. So,
1: but if, beyond the beyond, like the the statistics, did you have any kind of inkling or feeling for what Sweden was going to be like? Did you have any sort of cultural references regarding Sweden, or was it was it simply it was a sort of a, a, a number exercise?
4: Yeah, it was purely numbers. I mentioned my my thoughts and my plans to neighbors in, in the U.S. and they were like, Sweden, what's in Sweden? <laughs> like they, they had no idea why it would be so, such a draw.
2: Um, was there anything that surprised you when you arrived? Anything that was different than what you were expecting?
4: Uh, well, you know, I wasn't really appreciating the, the tourist sites uh, back then, but uh, I just felt very safe coming here. I guess the people were a bit of a cultural shock, because where, where I come from, it's, uh, it's quite typical to look people in the eye on the street and say hello and uh, <laughs> say good morning or good afternoon. So you get arrested here.
0: <laughs> are you happy with your decision or have you ever regretted it coming to Sweden?
4: Not at all. I mean, everything really uh, added up as far as the statistics are concerned. Um, so in that sense, the decisions I made based on those studies, I have no regrets whatsoever. Uh, I've decided to live here permanently now that I'm, I'm able to. Um, so I'd, I'd be quite happy to to have my my last remaining days be in Sweden.
0: Was it hard to get Was it hard to get established here and find a job?
4: Oh yeah, it wasn't for any of the statistical reasons. It was uh, due to the the refugee crisis and uh, political reasons that I was talking about earlier. A- at that time, it, it was estimated to take about six months from start to finish. It ended up taking more than six years. That was wow. quite a shock, <laughs> and of course that caused a you know a range of emotions. And I think I probably hit rock bottom at some, at at some point uh, because of that. I got three rejections. I actually got a deportation order, so that's that's still it. There's four years of validity when you get that. It, so I got it in 2017. So. I think I'm a proud holder of of, uh, a deportation order, but I haven't accumulated any illegal time in Sweden. And that's a bit of luck, because I managed to switch over to a a work visa almost uh, instantaneously. That was quite nerve wracking because if that wouldn't have happened, I probably would have been forced to to leave.
1: You mentioned as one one of your criteria that it was safety and violence and the murder rate. If you took an ordinary Swede right now and asked them what the biggest issue in Sweden was, a lot of them would say safety, the murder rates, gun violence. Coming from somewhere like Honduras, which has got this kind of problem multiplied, how do you look on, the, on that Swedish debate? How do you sort of feel when you, when you hear people talking about it like that in Sweden?
4: Well, I can understand it, and I'm, and I'm glad that they're concerned. Uh, I'm super glad because it's, it's on the news. Every single violent incident uh, gets talked about, and it, it's put in focus. Um, that's something that didn't happen where I come from. So a lot of these things get swept under the rug. There's just not enough time to cover all of the homicides. So it seems very utopic for me and uh, from a safety perspective to live here. Because I I don't have to look behind my back. Some people leave their their doors open, unlocked, and uh, if you lose something, you're very likely to get it back.
1: I'm just curious uh, now, just I think everyone would like to hear, you know, what what are you doing now in Sweden after you came here 2013 and and what's life like for you now?
4: Yeah, well, things are much better. I was able to, uh, you know, work my way up and get a a work visa, so there's no more concerns about uh, getting forced out of the country. I actually have my my passport with me, which is something I didn't have uh, during that entire waiting time. Uh, so between twenty fourteen and twenty nineteen, uh, I had to surrender my passport as a as a condition because that's the only way you can actually work. Uh, it's you're you're giving a work permit uh, exemption. So I didn't have a work permit, but I was exempted from having it be required in order to work. So I, I wanted to work from day one, but it's uh, it's kind of up to you to to find a job and and get a a contract and that took a while, that took between three or four years because I actually uh, started off as a a trial period just working for free. That was a very small contract, um, about two years. So I was lucky that I got noticed and uh, interviewed by one of the software consultancies here in Malmo and that uh, sort of got me into the Swedish market for software development. And once you're in there, you you start getting offers almost every week on LinkedIn. So it's a it's a nice industry to to be in. And uh, yeah, I was able to buy my own apartment um, just three years after I uh, I got hired. And yeah, I live in a pretty nice part of town. So I'm very happy about that. It's yeah,
2: it's, it's a really it's, nice uh, part of town. It's right <laughs> by the beach.
4: <laughs> so it's it's very calm. It's uh, I mean I really can't complain. They, The complaints are about the weather. I mean, to me, that's such a a small thing uh, in comparison to what I used to complain about, you know, 10 years ago.
2: It's interesting as well, because I know in the whole work permit debate, we've kind of touched on this in previous episodes um, of the podcast. There's been this kind of talk. I think the moderates are one of the parties behind it. I'm not sure who the other ones are. Of getting rid of this spårbjuda, where you can apply for a asylum visa and then change it to a work visa. So there actually there are parties that are talking about removing this, this step, this this possibility.
4: Yeah, I was quite disappointed and, and disheartened to to learn about that because that would mean if I was to come to Sweden uh, now, I wouldn't uh, be allowed to stay here. So and it's a it's a harrowing weekend that I went through because it, that Friday I was told, you know, mm. this, this is in place. Your, your deportation, uh, will happen. Yeah. That, that Monday, fortunately, first thing someone in, in it, um, they collaborated with my employer and, uh, switched it over to a, a work visa. And, uh, that wouldn't happen, uh, today. That would be very tragic for some people. I realize it's a, a very small mo- minority, uh, this is a very exceptional case. But um, it's
2: literally life-changing.
4: It is for me, it, yeah. it really was. Yeah.
3: One thing that was quite interesting when we when we spoke is you said that nowadays, you know, you had the eight categories of um and w- on which you ranked countries. Mm. You said that that nowadays you might change change the weighting you gave to the different categories. Right. So I mean, I, I mean, how would you change the 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 weighting that you had before you came?
4: Yeah. I think I place too much importance on the GDP and the economic aspects. And uh, there is a, a catch to the quality of life here in Scandinavia, you know, it's the taxes and the cost of living. Uh, it, you, you do pay for it somehow. And it comes from taxes. Uh, where I come from, taxes are very low, even in the U.S., uh, relatively speaking. So you know, you have to be okay with the higher cost in paying more taxes. And, and I. I pay them gladly because I I think it's it's fantastic what you get in return. GDP is really not that big of a deal, and it, it was probably second place for me back then.
3: And you said that you also might have factored in may, maybe housing, which wasn't included oh, on yeah. your list.
4: Yeah, that's something I I had no way of predicting. Uh, everywhere I've I've lived in in the past, it's it's so easy to find a place to rent the same day. I had no idea it would be so difficult uh, here in Sweden. Like the queues are months or even years. Of, I, I think I applied for a, a rental when I was living in, in Hoganess and I I still haven't got to my uh, spot in the queue.
2: Did you have any waiting on language? Like, obviously, you speak Spanish yeah, yeah. and um, very good English. Um, mm-hmm. So, did, did right. you look at, like, how many people speak English in this country? Will I be able to talk yes. to people? Yeah.
4: yeah, that was also something. I perhaps missed that, but <laughs> either Spanish or English had to be something that that was uh legally acceptable because of the specific uh, way i was going to enter the country I, w- I knew i had to do a lot of legal paperwork and and i wanted to check it myself so
0: and how is your your swedish now have you managed to learn the
4: language uh, i would say it's at a kindergarten level so i can <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it this is one of those things that uh it's, it sort of uh, bothers me, but I, I was very motivated uh, when I came to Sweden to, to study Swedish. But I didn't have a personal number back then. And if you want to get into a school, you must have this personal number. I tried and tried, and I insisted, even when I was told no. But every time I was told, you need to have this personal number. Otherwise, you, we can't register you for class. So, yeah, after a while, I, I switched my focus. I, I was studying it on my own um, from the library uh, and using apps as well but I, I switched over to software i just started studied that instead and uh that's what eventually uh, led to the job i have now
0: and richard and um, you're running a series of articles on the local about swedophiles at the moment what kind of other things have people been telling you
3: a lot of foreigners who end up in sweden Kind of end up here by mistake, you know. It's not. It's not like France where people dream of going to France and you know living on Brie and nice red wine and writing their novel. Or it's it, you just end up here by mistake. But when I came here first, I met a uh, German girl who was a statistician, and she had you know decided to move here partly because of that. And. And then I worked at Radio Sweden and the editor there, Chris Boswell, is a kind of Eurovision obsessive who, when he was a teenager somewhere in London, was already obsessed with Sweden and came here because of that. And I've met quite a lot of those people since. There's also social democrats, people who who are really committed to a kind of social democrat society and see Sweden as a kind of ideal exemplar of that. And you get people moving from South America particularly, quite often from sort of Latin countries which are a bit more chaotic and they're sort of seeking the sort of stability and the order that there is in Sweden. And the other thing is music like, like Sweden has a bizarre type of metal scene like melodic metal stuff I know nothing about like thrash metal and my neighbours in Malmo are Italians who are obsessed with you know the Swedish melodic metal and and it's enough to move country just to be near to that thing which I I find fascinating that people are willing to uproot their entire lives just because of they're going to the sort of the capital of melodic metal you know because as someone who kind of you know I'm really fascinated by Sweden but I would not have really chosen to come here <laughs> and so i find it fascinating that there are people who have and uh, and yeah and, and and since and i put out some requests on on the sort of various expat pages and i got so many answers from people like Carlos, who came for the num because of they, they'd sort of studied the numbers, or from people who came for music or design.
2: Well, you said that I'm one of these people,
3: and Becky is uh, is one of these people. You can out yourself now, Becky. Yeah. So,
2: uh, <laughs> although for Denmark, really, the only reason I ended up in Scandinavia was because when I was choosing what to study at university, there was a lot of Scandinavian crime dramas on TV in the UK. So I was like, oh, Scandinavian studies, that sounds good. Never been to Denmark, never been to Sweden. And then just kind of ended up moving after I studied Danish at uni. I moved over to Denmark for a master's and then met a Swede and moved here. So it was all just like, yeah, that sounds cool. I'll do that. I'll just move to a different country because I watched a lot of crime dramas. This language sounds cool.
3: It was, a, Was it what's the name? Is it Sarah Lund, the, the one with the jumper? Yeah, well, you're wearing it. Aren't you wearing a Sarah Lund jumper
1: there? I'm just, I can only see, a, I can only see an arm of it, but...
2: No, this is just from H&M, although that is also Scandinavian. It was definitely too many crime dramas.
0: Carlos, thanks very much for joining us. It was really, really interesting to hear your story. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to meet you,
4: Carlos. Likewise.
0: I know that many of our listeners are paying members of The Local. A big thank you for supporting us. It's absolutely crucial and enables us to keep covering the news and bringing you essential information from Sweden. And I just want to remind you that we have a new weekly newsletter for paying members launching on the 4th of July. It's called Sweden Elects. It's going to be produced by editor Emma Lovgain and will focus on the upcoming election. And you can sign up now at thelocal.se forward slash newsletters. On to the left party now. Uh, last week, Becky spoke to uh, Nushi Dagostar, as we heard earlier, for the locals' third party leader interview. And you can read the write-up of the interview on the website, thelocal.se, obviously. Uh, Becky, who is Nushi Dagostar and how long has she been left party leader?
2: She took over in 2020 from Jonas West at, um their previous leader. She was born in a refugee centre in Pashtop in Skåne and grew up in Gothenburg. Her parents are... Political immigrants or political asylum seekers from Iran
0: and what policies um, differentiate the left party most from other parties
1: if we talk about sort of generalities and we look at and we, and we look at sort of where the left party comes from the left party is Um, is is the furthest left in Swedish politics. So broadly speaking, higher taxes, higher benefits, more public spending, um, more public spending on healthcare education and that kind of thing. So if you are on the left of politics and you think that the social democrats are a bit too centrist and too right-wing, then you, then you vote. Then you vote for the left party. What their opponents would, would point to, in, in the case of the left party, is that you know that they that they derive from the from the old communist party. Um, they have that they have that background as well. Um, although the left party, I guess, would, would now say that that's um, ancient history since the you know, fall of the Berlin Wall. But that's something that's obviously dogged them for, for for many many years. They are a a, a full blown socialist party. That is your cup of tea. Then they are the party for you to vote for.
3: But their supporters, their actual supporters, I think, tend more towards the sort of urban, sort of university-educated left. I would say. I mean, they, they, yeah. there aren't that many kind of factory workers who vote for the left party,
1: broadly speaking. But I mean, you can I mean, you, you could, you could look at parts of, the, you know, parts of the country where they have strong support. For instance, in um, parts of um, Beris and the old industrial heartland, Fargushta is the town in, in, in uh, which I think is in Dalarna where they. Which is a very, very industrial place where they um, have for many years controlled the, the, the local council, one of the few that they popular do. they're in northern
2: Sweden as well, I think.
1: Yeah. Uh, exactly. So, so, yes, I mean, there is this kind of like, you know, these, uh, you know, what, what do you say, uh, you know, Södermalm in Stockholm, that's, you know, there are quite a lot of Venster, Venster Batista, left party voters. <laughs> Which is where this
2: Nushi festival was being held.
1: Right, exactly. So, so you've got yes, you've you've got you've got those kind of like um, middle class uh, urban socialists, and then you've got the. But then you know they do have working class voters as well. And 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 one of the things that that, that Nushi Dagosto is 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 focusing now is trying to is trying to reach traditional left wing working class voters, which is why and she's been criticised for this a bit. She's sort of been toning down perhaps a bit of the environmentalism that um, previous leaders of the left party have focused on and focusing more on sort of um, old-fashioned industrial left-wingery.
2: This was also reflected in this event. There was, after the Q&A, there was... um Someone that stormed the stage, which wasn't particularly difficult because it was very low down and there weren't any security. But there's someone that, that jumped on stage saying emissions need to be lowered by 20%. I'm an old left party voter, but I can't sleep at night. All of this stuff. And then the crowd, start, someone in the crowd shouted, yeah, that's right. And everyone started clapping. So I think there's definitely kind of a feeling. And Nushi kind of just disappeared into the background and went and took selfies with people at this point she kind of quietly slinked off so that she didn't have to answer these but you could definitely tell that there was a bit of a feeling in the crowd there that like yeah why aren't you addressing this like yeah this environment is an important issue.
1: Well, it is interesting as well, because I think, you know, if you look at these sort of urban middle class left wing voters who have, you know, who, who've supported the left party um, up to now, these are the ones that re- risk being lost whilst they chase people in, in places like Fogastar. And, and this is presumably going to be an opportunity as the election approaches for the for the Green Party, um, for the Milieu Partier to... to pinch some left-party voters, which they really desperately need because they're looking like they might not get in. So, um,
2: Oh, we should also note, perhaps the most important policy coming up to this election where they differ from other parties is NATO.
1: Absolutely. Well, them and the Green Party, yes, differ from um, other parties on the NATO question. Very much
3: anti-NATO and always happy.
0: nushi Dagastar has earned a reputation as a tough negotiator over the past year or so. What's that based on, Richard?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's based on the fact that, unlike her predecessor, Jörnus Gürstad was criticized when uh, after the 2018 election because he let Stefan Löfven take his position as prime minister without extracting any kind of concrete policy concessions because it's very difficult to square the center party and the liberal parties with the left party and and he just let them through he threatened a no confidence vote if they liberalised rents and also if they worsened kind of labour laws, which which they then went on to do. (laughs) Which they then went on to do. And he was there for the labour law part. And he gave the government a lot of leeway to sort of negotiate a compromise with the unions. And he didn't set a hard deadline. And he, he basically helped the government Managed the uh, the situation, whereas as soon as Nushi Daghestan took over, she put her foot down, voted with the opposition, and and felled um, Stefan Leven over over liberalising market rent. So she seems a lot tougher than than her predecessor was, but it's also partly the stage of the mandate because Jonas Krustad had said that he would back a no confidence vote if they did liberalize market rent so it, it he arguably would have done the same thing but the way she did it was very kind of tough and decisive and then she came in for a lot of criticism that she was all serious which is the what the sort of the, the way the social democrats attack anyone who does what they don't want to do and she came in for a lot of criticism for sort of destabilizing politics and also for for go, for for voting together with the right wing and and, um, but she kind of stood her ground quite well and and she really and they've really benefited from that I mean the left party went up quite strongly in the polls so politically it's been very successful as a strategy and also in terms of getting the left party what they want because market rents weren't liberalized and labor laws were were liberalized, but that was done together with the unions so she's got what she wanted and she's succeeded politically so she's been very successful she's played a blinder. <laughs>
2: This whole negotiating style as well is kind of what's come back to bite the Social Democrats in the ass now with the budget. They're calling it the Nushi tillegit to pensions. Nushi Dadgostar refused to back Magdalene Anderson's prime ministerial bid unless she got a concession on pensions. And she got this concession on pensions that's being put in the budget, but then it's not very popular with the opposition. So this is kind of what's all bubbling up and has created this issue that we've got now with the, with the budget that might or might not get passed and all the drama there. I can't imagine they would be in the government, but they they kind of know that their best way of getting their policies through is to use whatever power they have over the government to kind of get concessions. But
1: if you look at it before Nushi Dagestad took over, they were being accused, and, you know, with some justification of being a doormat, that they were, they were never going to vote out a social democratic government because the alternative for them was, you know, the government involving the Sweden Democrats and the moderates, which was anathema to them. But I think Nushi Dagestad has said, well, actually, you know, it's not all our responsibility. We are going to use the power that we have. And if there are consequences to that, well, so be it. We have the power and, we, and, and it's our right and we, our voters expect us to use it.
3: But it also works in a sort of long-term strategic sense. So when they were trying to lure the Liberal and the Centre parties across the, the block grensen to, to the left-wing block, it was sensible for the left party to keep quiet. But then as soon as they're kind of... I mean, now, now the moderates have gone in with the Sweden Democrats it's very difficult for the centre party to go back, so they don't have any mm. leverage. So then the left party has room to come out and go, actually, we want this. And then the centre party has to go, well, yeah, maybe. And they can no longer demand what they want. Because what the centre party got in 2018 was an incredible list of policy concessions, which, you know, few right-wing governments would have would have put through and the Social Democrats mm. had to enact it all. But the price has been that they're there, now they're kind of stuck and the left party can now say, actually, no, you can't have that. And for the Social Democrats, that's quite handy because it means that they no longer have to give such concessions to the to the centre party. The
1: size of the left party has the potential to become a problem for the Social Democrats. The more dependent the Social Democrats are on the left party and the more they are therefore dragged to the left, the greater difficulty they are going to have reaching centrist voters. And that potentially, you know, given that the Social Democrats' long-term aim has been, was, has been to sort of destroy the unity of the centre-right parties, which they've kind of done, but also to, you know, place itself in the centre and be, and be able to rule from the centre. A large, strong left party puts certain constraints on that. So, you know, it's, it's not unproblematic for Magdalene Andersson.
0: Sweden was uh, supposed to get a new spring budget this week, but things got very messy. The government declined to vote for its own budget proposal after the Parliament's Finance Committee refused to authorise some late amendments. Instead, the opposition's proposal was put to the floor and didn't receive enough votes to pass. Can somebody please explain what's going on and what happens next? What's
1: going on, if we, t- if we take a step back, is um, what's been going on for most of this parliament, which is that there is no majority for anything, really, in this parliament, or there's a very, very shaky majority of, of, of one for the centre-to-left-wing parties. If we look at the, the, the content of what's going on here, the main thing in this budget is two proposals, one from the right-wing parties, one for the left-wing parties, on pensions, which would both see pensions... Rise for people on the lowest pensions. The differences between these are, the the parties blow them up. Um, But, you know, when you actually look at what the differences would mean in terms of what the poorest pensioners would get, at least, insignificant differences. Right now, it's about power play. It's about showing who's got momentum, who's got the, you know, who's got the upper hand in Parliament.
0: So we're recording this on Thursday. It looks like the government is going to present its amended budget proposal tomorrow, Friday, and the likelihood is that it will be put to the vote on on Wednesday. Have I understood that correctly?
1: That is correct. And then we'll see we'll see whether it goes through. Of course, the, another thing that's interesting here, and uh, perhaps the thing that is that has the the largest potential to to be important is again Amina Kakabave, this um, the independent former left party MP. Amina Kakabave has now put further stipulations to the Social Democrats for what it would take to support their proposal. And one of those is no arms sales to Turkey, which in the context of the NATO discussion is um, is, 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 is is complicating things even more. So there's, there is a NATO aspect to this as well.
0: And if she decides to abstain, the most likely outcome is a dead heat. And what happens in that eventuality?
1: They draw lots. And the and, and 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 so it will be down to a fifty-fifty chance as to which budget goes through.
0: Yeah, it's very possible that it will come down to that.
1: It is very possible that we will have budget by lot drawing. A quite incredible
0: outcome. I was watching the TV news last night and they, they interviewed some voters who are just exasperated at this new sort of round of confusion in the in the Rickstar and People who were interviewed sort of accused the MPs of using the rickstar as a playground. Is there a risk that this is going to spark some sort of voter apathy?
2: I mean, look at us. Our job is literally to understand this and to talk about this and to write about this. And we're all fed up. I'm happy I can't vote because I don't have to. I don't have to think about this. I can just ignore it and just wait and see what happens at the end of the election.
3: I mean, I think, I think the, the, the benefit has to be for the right-wing parties because, because people will say, OK, we don't really like the idea of a government backed by the Sweden Democrats, but it has to be better than this chaos.
1: I don't know. I think the problem we have now is not so much the composition of the government, it's the fact that it doesn't have a majority, right? So a right-wing government without a majority is going to be just as hard to manage and unstable as the government we've got now.
0: People travelling out of Sweden this spring and early summer have faced major obstacles in the form of long lines to get through security checks at Arlanda Airport in particular and a massive backlog of people seeking to renew their Swedish passports. If we look at the the queuing situation at airports first, what's it like at the moment, Becky?
2: So I think it's better than it has been. The last I heard there was queues at Arlanda Airport uh, that were around an hour long. So so Arlanda reopened uh, a different terminal this week to kind of ease that backlog. But now they're saying that the problem they're getting is that people are coming to the airport too early for their flights.
0: What's being done to make things better aside from opening Terminal 4 um, at Orlando, which is apparently improving matters somewhat?
3: The big issue is is just staffing up. It's the same issue with the airlines, with the trains, with everything involved in travel, which is that they got rid of a lot of extra staff during the pandemic and they just haven't been able to staff up rapidly enough to meet the bounce back in in people travelling. So they're just desperately trying to hire people. But also the way they've opened the terminal, they haven't just opened a new terminal, they've also redesigned it. So Terminal 4 was previously for domestic flights, but now they're using it for the entire of Ryanair's operation. I don't know how Ryanair managed to score that, but they've obviously obviously done some kind of deal. So Ryanair basically has Terminal 4 to itself for all of its flights but they're also bringing in some other flights into terminal 4 and then they've created um they've put a massive great big travelator I don't know what it I think it's a sort of flat escalator mm. to terminal 5 so people can zip over and then go through customs in terminal yeah. in terminal five they've also yeah. changed
2: it so that if you only have hand luggage then you can go like through you can go through security in a different route so you you'll be kind of sluiced away from all the people with the uh, with check luggage
3: yeah exactly that for departures people who i think almost any flight if you've got a hand luggage you can go through terminal 4 and, and do all your sort of
2: security. security
3: there and then go get your flight in Terminal 5. So that should help. But, but, but they've still got the problem that they just don't have enough people to check to do the security and the baggage check-in. So, so they, they, that doesn't create more staff. It just creates more space.
2: And SAS have just announced a pilot strike starting in the end of June. So that's going to make life even more chaotic and that's going to be affecting Denmark Sweden and Norway
1: also saw that uh, the SE the Swedish railway operator has a shortage of train drivers for the summer as well because everybody's entitled to these four weeks of leave in a row every summer and obviously there aren't just a magic number of train drivers who can cover for them so I don't know just stay at home
2: so basically we've got a great article on the site of what you can do in Sweden in summer and um, I would suggest (laughs) looking at that and not choosing anywhere that you have to get to by train Staycation 2022, just like 2021 and 2020. <laughs> Don't you love Sweden?
1: <laughs> you better.
0: And Becky mentioned that people are arriving at the airport too early. How long before departure are people being recommended to arrive at the airport, James? Two hours,
1: I think. Two to three hours, which, you know, it's all very well. But if you then see people on Facebook say, well, it took me two hours to get through to security... Then it doesn't feel massively reassuring.
3: I think obvious is recommending to 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 check with your airline how early you have to arrive. So so rather than just turn up four hours behind, if the, if your airline says you need at least four hours, then you can come four hours early. But mm. um, otherwise, just come. You know, two hours early.
2: I think they were saying as well that it's busiest in the morning and then it kind of gets more the queues get shorter after lunch. So if you're if you can choose when you're flying, if you choose an evening flight or a flight after lunchtime, then I think you can maybe get to the airport a little bit shorter. Although disclaimer, if you miss your flight, don't follow my advice. Maybe maybe check with your airline, don't just do what I say. <laughs> I do not want to be behind anyone missing any flights. Always check with your airline.
0: For people travelling with their children, there's a special line in Terminal 5 for families with children.
1: When I was there, the child gate was um, completely empty. So you could just sail through if you have children. So next time I travel, I'm going to borrow someone's children.
0: And that takes us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. Thank you for listening. And thank you to this week's guests, Becky Waterton, James Savage and Richard Orange, and our special guest, Carlos Velasco. We'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.